Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily Pucks podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Teddy Schleifer. It is Wednesday, August 3rd. And today, Tara Palmieri is here to answer a question. Is the GOP blowing it? We talk about the race for the United States Senate and why the Republican Party may not be doing as well as one would think. And later on, Ben Landy is here with Julia Alexander to talk about Apple TV's newest release, Blackbird. Why is the tech giant struggling to carve out some of the streaming market despite Apple TVs being in so many homes? Hopefully, Julia lets us know. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. We are joined today by Tara Palmieri, who is here to talk us through whether or not Republicans will retake the Senate. Hey, Tara. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So we're recording this on Tuesday, the day it is an election day. Tonight, we'll get results from Arizona, where there is a competitive U.S. Senate primary that that we've been writing about a lot here at Puck, and in Missouri, right. where there's another Republican primary. And I wanted to use those those two elections just to, to kind of zoom out for a bit about where the Republican Party sits at this summer. It's 100 days out as of this last weekend. The conventional wisdom would be ordinarily that Republicans would do well as the party that is out of power. They can run against the status quo. But the Senate is an unusual map this cycle. The map is friendly to Democrats. So even though there are the national headwinds that Biden is struggling against, the Senate is a bit more of a complicated picture than the House. Can you just talk me through where the quest to retake the Senate is succeeding for Republicans and tell me where it is failing, at least 100 days out as of this weekend? That's a really good question. I know that Republicans are pretty optimistic about New Hampshire, even though they don't have a a solid candidate right now, like they haven't had their primaries yet. They were hopeful about Pennsylvania Pat Toomey is a Republican who's retiring, but Biden won that state against Trump. They were hopeful about taking back Georgia at one point against Raphael Warnock, who won a special election after half a million people decided not to go out to vote when, you know, Trump basically said that the election was rigged and that the voting systems were useless. I guess the the states that they were hoping to pick up would be Arizona and Nevada, right? They're trying to win back Georgia and they are trying to win back New Hampshire. Yeah. I mean, the the Republicans were super hopeful that they would have this wave like there was in 2010, um, two years after Obama was elected, and that that would lead to wins in the Senate. But a lot like that year, which was a Tea Party year, there ended up being a few kind of far-right kooky candidates winning primaries And that ended up really hurting their prospects of taking back the Senate. You know, you had Christine, I'm a witch, O'Donnell. um, In my home home state of Delaware. Right. Legitimate rape, Aiken. But, you know, it was kind of a a weird time where the the House, the wipeout in the House was so strong, right, against Democrats. And they were hoping to really, like, carry that over into the Senate. And it didn't really work out because of the type of candidates. And a lot of people are sort of comparing that 
year to now, 12 years later, 2022, Republic, it's kind of Republicans to lose at this point, right? Who specifically is seen as such a weak candidate? You've been reporting on, on Pennsylvania and on Georgia. Talk to me about a few of these races where you, where you sense some concern that the Republican candidate they got wouldn't necessarily be the ideal Republican candidate to take out a Democratic incumbent or a Democratic challenger in a vulnerable year. Well, the one, I guess, through line between all these candidates that are perceived as weak are that they were endorsed by Donald Trump, right? That's Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. That's Herschel Walker in Georgia. That is J.D. Vance in Ohio. But yeah, a lot of these like MAGA Trump candidates are not doing so well after being endorsed by him and fighting really tough primaries against like some pretty strong candidates. Like for example, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania was up against David McCormick. He spent a lot of money um, to win that primary and it was pretty Mm -hmm. bruising. And then ultimately now he's, you know, falling behind Fetterman, John Fetterman, a pretty liberal Democrat who just suffered a major stroke and hasn't been on the campaign trail. So like that tells you something, right? (laughs) And you know, Oz is not doing well. I just reported last week that he has gotten some lip service from the NRSC telling him you cannot go on vacation to Ireland in the middle of the election season. You cannot be off in Palm Beach. We need you on the ground hustling to make this happen, right? I mean, it's hard because he also made a big mistake filming a video, a campaign video from his house in New Jersey. It's a hit that's been on him for a long time that he doesn't actually live in Pennsylvania, that he's from New Jersey. There's been a few mistakes and a perception that he's just not working hard enough, that it's a it's a lazy campaign. So, you know, when your opponent actually physically can't campaign, I think there was a higher expectation for him. He does have really good political professionals too. His team is like one of the best that, you know, TV money can buy. There's sort of a feeling that Oz is underperforming. There's also a feeling that J.D. Vance is underperforming in Ohio. Those two are defending Republican seats, like, seats that were vacated by Republican incumbents, Pat Toomey in in Pennsylvania and Rob Portman in Ohio. J.D. Vance, his candidacy, was a big part of the reason that he won was because he got the endorsement from Trump after um, Peter Thiel made some pretty impassioned pleas to Trump because J.D. Vance was down. And now I think there's a feeling that he's not on the campaign trail enough and that um, his campaign could be doing better. Herschel Walker. Now, he's a guy who I've been told will campaign his ass off. He'll go anywhere. He will work so hard. His problem is he's not the best debater. There's just been some issues with his ability to, you know, be truthful. <laughs> Specifically, he couldn't even answer how many children he has. Um, he has some issues with policy, staying on message. The feeling is that he doesn't have a strong message. And and there was a, there was a thought that if he had a better team, that the team that he had in the primaries, that they were mainly handlers and that if he had a stronger team, which he has sought out and, and started to build up, that he might do better. But I, you know, spoke to people who were courted by Herschel Walker during that time. And they said, you know, he seems erratic. He's distrustful. He doesn't trust his own team. He doesn't really listen to people. That it's really a candidate problem. And even the best political professionals probably couldn't help him. Tara, it might not just be that Republicans are nominating kind of out there candidates for the Senate, but also that things might not be as bad for Biden as they were even when we talked uh, a week ago, right? The, the administration has been trumpeting declining gas prices. They maybe are on the cusp of some sort of surprise 
uh, legislative package with with Joe Manchin that we discussed on the podcast the other day. Obviously, we're firmly in the land of speculation here, but maybe Biden's poll numbers climb from 35 to 40 and suddenly, you know, things aren't quite as perilous for Democrats as they might have feared or as we might have thought last time we spoke just kind of 10 days ago. Right. I mean, I think it was kind of presumed that the Republicans, as long as their candidates didn't totally stick their foot in their mouth, that it would probably be a plus one, a generic ballot overall for the Senate. At one point, people were hoping for like plus three or four, maybe a few months ago. July, August, June polling, it tends to show races tightening. It's just kind of how it goes, right? Even, you know, Susan Collins, her race last cycle really tightened up over the summer in July, August. The Sullivan race was tightening. Joni Ernst, um, Danes, like it just tightens up over the summer. People sometimes tune out, but I think we'll have a better idea over fall. I also don't know how much the Dobbs decision has helped the Democrats as well, right? Right. Here's the thing. Even if Republicans win all their seats, it's not like they're going to be up 60, right? It's that's not mm-hmm. that, that's not even a possibility. It's going to essentially be a tied Senate whether they like have Mitch McConnell in leadership or not. I guess he gets to decide the calendar and maybe they determine appointments more, but like you know, if they're up by one seat, it's not that big of a difference. If anything, even if Republicans aren't in power, the House will have more power, which will probably be Republican. And a lot of things will just die in the Congress, essentially, with a split Congress. And they probably would have anyway, because Biden's not going to sign any radical legislation coming through. (laughs) But I think the feeling overall is that there could have been better candidates for the Republicans. All right, Tara, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. We'll be right back to talk about Apple TV Plus with Ben Landy and Julia Alexander. Back in a sec. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Alexander. So I was really excited when you said you wanted to talk about this new Apple TV show, Blackbird, because one, I have been watching it and enjoying it. But apparently, according to you, I'm either alone or just there hasn't been a big cultural moment where people are really talking about this show as much as Apple would like. Um, Is there a reason why Apple hasn't really broken through in the streaming wars quite as much as people would like to see, either with this show or in general? So I think there's two part answers to that. On the one hand, Apple doesn't have the catalog size that a lot of its competitors do. Apple doesn't have the huge library that keeps people coming back to it. Um, And its originals, as in-demand as some of them are, you know, that includes everything from Ted Lasso, of course, to The Morning Show, to C and Severance, which has seen a ton of Emmy nominations. As much as in-demand as those are, it's a really competitive space for original series to break through. So on the one hand, they're just in a really competitive market and they are kind of just one of the entrants. Although I would say over the last two years, they've definitely made a name for themselves with some of their original series. But on the other hand, there is this ongoing concern amongst people in the creative part of Hollywood and on the producer side that Apple's marketing department does not necessarily have the power that it should have, especially when we think of Apple as a company, which is really well known for its marketing abilities. If we think of what that company did for the iPhone and for the iPod, there is this concern that, well, we don't know if our shows are getting the marketing that it really needs in order to cut through the rest of the noise, especially because we're in such an oversaturated market. 
The really interesting thing about Blackbird is that the executive producer on that show is actually Richard Plepler, who is the generationally talented HBO executive who oversaw the sort of high golden age of prestige television. And after he left HBO amid the um, AT&T-Time Warner merger, he went over to Apple, where he sort of disappeared. Like, I, I had no idea that he was really involved in the show, and I haven't seen it in any of the marketing material. Right. And so this is my kind of obsession with Blackbird. And, and Blackbird is the show that stars Taron Egerton, who was in the Kingsman movies. He was in the Elton John film, uh, Rocket Man. Great actor. And part of the reason that I was drawn to this was I hadn't heard of it. And I work in an industry where I'm talking to executives all day. I'm talking to talent all day. I am hyper aware of what is coming coming out. Hadn't heard of Blackbird. It wasn't until a friend told me to check it out that I, I did. And kind of like yourself, I fell in love with it very quickly. I'm very, very into it. So I started looking into it. And all of a sudden, it was like, this is from Richard Plepler's production company. And so when Richard Plepler left HBO during the AT&T debacle, he went over to Apple. I believe it was a five-year deal that he was going to produce projects with his production company for Apple TV+. And so there was a Lincoln documentary. There was, um, he did another show that I can't remember the name of. And then he had Blackbird. And so I thought, man, I haven't really heard of this. So I started talking to people in the space. And one former studio executive I talked to who's now doing their own thing, said to me that producers they talk to on Apple on Apple productions, again, are really kind of worried about the lack of marketing for some of these titles. And so they've actually started looking outward, outside of Apple, to increase the marketing on their own kind of budget to ensure that their shows are kind of seen or, or to better the chance of those shows being seen. And the reason I thought Blackbird was so inherently interesting was because this is, to your point, a Richard Plepler project. You know, this is the former head of HBO who oversaw kind of Game of Thrones. And yet, you know, we're not really hearing much about what Plepler's doing, at least I'm not. And we're not really hearing much about Blackbird on the Apple front. And again, at least I'm not. And what makes these conversations really difficult, and this is kind of what I heard in my conversations, is it's not just that, you know, Apple could be doing something and marketing is getting super targeted because of data analytics. And so there could be a segment of people that are being marketed toward and we're just not hearing about it. But on the other side of it, there is this real, I think, kind of concern that by Apple not kind of going the broad strokes method and really trying to just find the, the, the largest market possible for some of the big shows like a Blackbird from a Richard Plepler, you know, what does that say for other titles on the platform that are coming up that might not have huge talent attached to it, that might not have a huge producer attached to it, um, and that are kind of left way left wayside, I should say, when, all, when, when there's so much content from all these other streaming services, which is a whole other issue. I've got to say that I'm super bullish on Apple TV+. I've been enjoying Blackbird. I loved C. I know season three is coming out soon. I really enjoyed Servant, the M. Night Shyamalan series. And of course, this is a $2.5 trillion company. I mean, they really have endless funds to throw at this thing to make this work. And they have very talented people working there. Do you expect that there's going to be a sort of inflection point where Apple TV really breaks through the national consciousness and into the market in a bigger way over the next year or so? Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I'm very bullish on Apple. And although we don't know anything about Apple TV Plus specific numbers, although we don't know anything about Apple One, which is Apple Services Bundle, although we don't know anything about those numbers, I really do think Apple TV Plus has the right talent behind it. They do have a bunch of breakout shows. They are finding an audience. What I will say that's really interesting about the Apple scenario is I'm someone who only really uses Apple devices, and that includes my TV set box. I use an Apple TV set box. And so 
TVOS is the operating software from these TV set-top boxes that you use, whether it's a Roku, an Amazon Fire TV stick, an Apple TV, a Google Chromecast TV, whatever it might be, they have this homepage. And the homepage is really important because most people or most streaming services don't have the muscle memory built into it that people go to and they automatically open the way that we did with cable. You turn on your TV and there's cable and you would chat you would channel surf because there was no real walled garden. Now what's happening is that all these streaming services operate independently. So they're their own walled gardens. You really have to know to open an app. The only streaming service that came close to that ever was Netflix. And that was because it had a monopolization on the industry. There was no other real competition. So of course you went to go open Netflix. But Apple has this advantage of being able to say, well, we have the Apple TV set box. We have an Apple TV plus service. We really want to promote Blackbird. We really want to promote Severance, whatever it might be. And I know that you saw the Blackbird promo on the Apple TV And what's funny was that I didn't. And the only thing I can think of is that when you open up a streaming service, what happens is that it takes your data over time, takes your viewing habits and starts recommending you stuff, right? Those are those algorithmic recommendations. The algorithmic recommendations only work within the apps that you are watching because that's the only data they have access to. Unlike cable where you you channel surf, Netflix has Netflix data, HBO Max has HBO Max data, Apple TV Plus has Apple TV Plus data. They don't have each other's data. So when I'm watching Apple TV+, Plus, I'm watching Ted Lasso, I'm watching Severance, I'm watching something else, the algorithm might just not think you're not into Blackbird, so we're not really going to promote this to you, we're going to promote something else that we think you'll actually spend time on. And that is at the core, the issue between relying on the algorithm and then not necessarily having the marketing budget or the marketing spent according to some of these producers that they really want to see to cut through that noise. So I do think that Apple TV+, Plus, I'm very bullish on them. I think, you know, I don't necessarily know what their subscriber count is, but I think that they'll continue to grow. And I really do think they should acquire some kind of a library to have to give people a reason to really sign up and really make that value perception even better. But I do think there is this point where Apple, at the end of the day, is still a tech company trying to figure out content and, and figuring out how to, how to break through the noise with the content, which I think they're doing pretty well. But then also, how do you then compete with all these other closed streaming services that are fighting for attention on your homepage? and within their own homepages. So I think the Blackbird conundrum kind of spoke languages to me about what we're going to see happen with a bunch of other streaming services. Thanks, Julie. That's fascinating. And I I totally agree that the the power of the Apple widget is underappreciated and something that I presume they'll lean on more and more to drive eyeballs to their premium content. Um, Do you think that Blackbird is actually going to emerge as sort of a sleeper success, or is it going to plateau from where it is now? I mean, according to the data that I'm seeing over at um, Parrot Analytics, where I work, it's definitely picking up a ton of speed. Whether or not that speed really continues past the finale, which is airing on August 5th, and becomes something that people come back to and reference the way that we do with Severance and Ted Lasso, I don't think so. But I kind of hope that this is a wake-up call to a lot of executives that there are audiences for this who are finding it on their own. And sometimes it just needs a little push. And I do think that if it does end up being one of Apple's big successes, it'll bring a really, really interesting point to the whole, the buzz only happens around the premiere and the finale. If it continues well past the finale, I think that's a really, really captivating data point that we'll see a lot more conversation around. Absolutely. Thanks, Julia, very much, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. 
Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 